Marty is the agent of chaos. He is the enemy of fate and destiny. Life is precious and important, and Marty wants to preserve that. And I think that's that's strong, that's powerful, that's meaningful, in a sense that not a lot of people talk about with this film. It is specifically about spitting in the face of destiny and fate and predestination. Hello, and welcome to My Favorite Movie Is, a podcast all about why we love our favorite movies. I'm your host, Larry Freed, and for today's inaugural episode, we're talking to YouTube video essayist and Game Rant features writer Max Mariner, all about his favorite movie, Back to the Future. It's about, like, it's a crowd pleaser that wears its heart on its sleeve, and it's not subtle in its delivery. Like, this is what's happening. This is, these are the emotions that are on display. These are the emotions that we want to convey to you. And we pick it up. We pick it up because the film earns it. We talk about the film's airtight first act, its commentary on destiny and fate, and how a film that is such a product of its time remains absolutely timeless. I mean, I honestly couldn't have picked a better movie to start off this entire podcast with, even if I tried. However, for those of you who have still somehow not seen Back to the Future, one, please watch Back to the Future. Okay, thanks. Two, be warned, we are going right past the red tape and deep into spoilers on this one, as we will with every episode on the show. So viewer discretion, or I guess listener discretion, is advised. Anyway, without further ado, you know what? I'm going to let our guest do the honors. My name is Max Mariner, and my favorite movie is Back to the Future. Max Mariner, welcome to the show. Welcome to the first episode of the show. How you doing? I'm doing well. I'm very excited for uh, for this. I've been looking forward to um, to being a part of this. Happy to have you. For those who don't know, Max and I have been friends and collaborators for a long time. We've done a lot of projects together. We've also talked about Back to the Future a number of times, and we and I've known that Max's favorite film is Back to the Future, which is why I uh, am having him here. And I think it's appropriate that we start this podcast about movies that are that you know are people's favorite movies with a movie that i think is a lot of people's favorite movie i've talked to a number of people and every and i and like they're all like oh yeah it's probably i mean like i guess it's like i don't know back to the future or something like it's like it's like such a classic movie that people are just like oh yeah probably back to the future is my favorite, and I just find that very, very interesting. There is no Back to the Future discourse. There's no hot debate on whether or not the movie is good, actually. No, no, it's one of the most agreeably good movies perhaps ever made. I'm not saying it's everybody's favorite, but I don't think there's a single person out there who's like, oh, it's just an average movie. It's a very lovable and easy-to-enjoy uh, film, and I think that's one of the reasons why it endures, one of the many reasons why it endures. Right, and we'll talk about that for sure in terms of... Um why this movie endures so well. But I'm going to start this conversation with how I start every conversation on this podcast. Talk to me a little bit about your first experience watching this film. Sure. And uh, I'm going to kind of give you everything I want. I want the five W's and the one H. The who, what, where, when, why, and if you're feeling generous, the how of your first experience watching this film. The first time I ever watched this film was in uh, September 2008. I just started high school and... I had known Back to the Future very vaguely as just a popular movie from the 80s about time travel. My dad uh, got Back to the Future as a DVD from Netflix because that was the thing you did in 2008 with Netflix. And my whole family, me, my mom, my sister, my dad and I, we all just watched it. And I remember specifically like 
I have no problems with this movie. I had just begun like really thinking about film in a much more critical context, which obviously is like, you know, when you're 14 is, is, is pretty limited, but it was a film where it's like, I can't think of a single thing wrong with this film. Not one. Were there any moments while watching the film? I mean, it's hard, it might be hard to recall because this was a number of years ago, but were there any moments while you were first watching the film that you recall as like really sticking with you? Okay, well, on a um, teenage level, seeing Leah Thompson young for the first time. <laughs> yes. She, Leah oh. Thompson in Back to the Future is incredibly attractive in that movie. Yeah, took my breath away. I mean, I specifically remember when I was watching it at 14, like, I wanted this to be sort of like, you know, what I wanted high school to be. I was a kid who was like, you know, a known quantity with like a, a super attractive girlfriend or whatever. Like, it was the dream, right? And I could also go back in time because time travel is cool. And also you can correct mistakes from your past because that's the fun part about time travel on a psychological level. Yeah, Marty McFly is kind of like the coolest teen ever yeah and the yeah. F and he, but he's also a good guy like there's that scene where he saves his dad uh from the car and i don't think he thinks to himself oh god if he dies then i die i don't i don't think he operates that well he's just like oh god my dad's gonna get hurt so he pushes him out of the way even though he knows the story of how he and his mom left one of the strengths of back to the future as a franchise is that it is so good at building up story details and callbacks and things like that. And so when you first meet Marty's family, there's that throwaway line, you know, like, oh, how did we meet? Like, you know, how did Marty's parents meet? And you were, what were you doing there, George? Bird watching, you know, like, uh, like in that moment in the dinner table. What was it, George? Bird watching? What, Lorraine? What? And you don't even think about it when you first oh, watch it. Oh my God, did they Be say that? I actually didn't yes, know that. Yes, they literally the say that. I feel like Back to the Future's first act is one of the best first acts in any movie I've ever seen because it does such a great job of laying out so many story details and thematic ideas that end up getting played with later on. And so that scene with Marty's parents is uh, when you first meet them is a great example of this because so many details are being laid out for you. And one of those is how they met. You don't notice it because you're just sort of living in Marty's world. You're just sort of following him. You're not actively thinking like, oh, I need to like piece together these details about his story so that way these things make sense when we go back to the 50s. You just sort of absorb it. And then when you get to the scene where George is a peeping Tom in the tree watching the woman from across the street and Marty saves him, like, that's that moment. That moment mm -hmm. was built up from the very uh, beginning. But what also, to speak to your point about Marty, like, the scene is not framed in the sense of Marty's about to interrupt the way his parents first met. It's like Marty's just being Marty. He's just doing what he thinks is right. And I think one of the strengths is that Marty as a character is like just a very good, natural, personable guy. So when all of these story details are playing out, you're like, oh, my God, he actually just interrupted the moment where his parents first met. And as you rewatch the movie over and over, you realize all of these details are being like so well laid for the foundation. This, of course, brings us to the very first shot of the film. Like, the famous first shot. Like, I remember watching it for the first time, and, like, it only stuck out to me as, like, a really cool, like, well-made, very easygoing shot of, like, all the cool stuff in Doc Brown's place. But each time I rewatched it, I'm like, okay, this gives us all the information we need in a very direct and, like, uninterrupted sense. Also, as I watched it just recently, it's like, most of this stuff doesn't work. 
I always sort of revised the scene in my head to be like, oh, it's an awesome Rube Goldberg machine because Doc Brown's a genius and like everything falls into place with like getting the, the dog food on Einstein's bowl. But no, most of it fails. Most of it's a bad <laughs> idea. Only a few things actually work. And that encapsulates his Doc Brown as a character so well. And it's weird that I didn't even notice it until now. But it's it totally like defines the character that we don't actually see for a, a good like 15 minutes or so. But... We understand this guy as soon as we see him, as soon as we see his weird hair, as soon as we see everything that's in his lab. We know Doc Brown so well, and that's thanks to this opening shot. That opening shot does, like, it, it bench presses the entire narrative like it's a continent. Speaking of that first shot, there are, like, little details throughout that first shot. Like, they talk about, I think they talk about the Libyan terrorists. They mention the uh, yep. uprising in Libya like mm -hmm. during that opening and then you see like newspapers with like the date on it and like the, you know the the, ma the brown mansion burning down yeah 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 right exactly his estate burning down like which no one ever talks about that detail by the way but it's like it's so these stories are like they get a little less tight as they go on but like when you first go to the brown estate in the 50s it's like it's a crazy like moment where you're like oh yeah doc brown like had a mansion that burned down like no one because ever he had a mansion in 1955 right exactly in, in the in 85 and for anybody who's wondering what happened to that mansion well you're given an answer before you even consider it and exactly then when you, yeah. and then if for anybody who really paid attention to that detail when marty arrives at the mansion you're like oh this mansion burns down oh shoot like you have a little bit of a sense it doesn't actually like come up in any sense and it is kind of weird that it's never like adjusting a plot point outside of oh it explains this but it's a cool detail that helps give more texture to Doc's character in a very, in a passive, small, but ultimately meaningful sense. Obviously, you've seen the film a number of times. Do you know how many times you've seen this movie? Probably, f probably five or six. There's some things you just want to have, like, nice and, and easy whenever you watch it, whenever I watch it every, like, once every few years, that, like, remind you why you love movies, why you love filmmaking, and why you love storytelling. That's why I don't, I haven't watched it maybe as much as, as many times as, like, my favorite Pixar film or my favorite Marvel film or whatever. Like, it's just, it's precious. It's a precious little thing. I mean, that's a, I mean, there's, there's a really great conversation there about like how often should you watch your favorite movies? You know, like I feel like some people will watch their favorite movies compulsively, like very often. And I'm, and like, I don't know, like there's a part of you that like, it kind of ruins the mystique of it if you watch it like too many times. Like, I think one of the great things about Back to the Future is, it, it does constantly surprise you because there are so many details. Director Robert Zemeckis is one of the all-time eccentric technicians in Hollywood history. And although everybody talks about, you know, like the effects of the DeLorean stuff, it's really sort of Back to the Future was where I think he really started to understand like the details and little minutia of storytelling that can really like enhance a more thoughtful audience audience's experience. And that's where like all those details we've been talking about, all the little things that you don't notice in the first time, but also adds to uh, your rewatch. Like, again, I see something new. I see something incredible about this film that I've never seen before. It is a, it's a learning experience every single time. And that's really, really tough for any film to do. It's one thing to be great the first time, but to be better than great every time afterwards, that's a miracle. I was wondering if there were any observations that you've sort of uh, had about this movie, whether that be from the first time you saw it or if it came to you in an experience of revisiting it, are there any like observations you have about the film that 
you think are important or an observation that like makes it your favorite and especially if maybe there's an observation about this movie that like you don't feel like people like talk about or it's something that's kind of under under said about a movie that obviously I feel like has been talked about on many podcasts what has been said about this movie that hasn't already been said it's like that phrase that you hear all the time when talking about like Casablanca the Godfather whatever like that phrase applies to back to the future perhaps more so than any other film like made in the last 30 40 years however I feel like people talk about back to the future in very simplistic terms not entirely unfounded the movie is not exactly a super artistic film it's very it's almost workmanlike in how it's designed. But the reason why it's my favorite, the thing I noticed when I was watching this film, it is specifically about spitting in the face of destiny and fate and predestination. It is a story about somebody deciding to make his history better and not being the person everybody thinks it is. Like I always think, I always think of that incredibly like unsubtle confrontation between Marty and Mr. Strickland. No McFly ever amounted to anything in the history of Hill Valley. Yeah, well, history is going to change. I will say that's one of the best moments of the first act. Those lines that are so simple and feel so like, obviously they're very cheesy, like no McFly has ever made anything in the history of Hill Valley. They're fun, but they encapsulate the theme so well. And it's another reason, you know, talking about the first act, you know, it it is it is one of the many moments of the first act that do such a great job of establishing like what the movie is about. What are the themes and ideas of the movie? Up until that moment, I consider that scene like you know it's like a fun, silly, like cheesy thing. It's like oh, it's foreshadowing because history is going to change because that's how the movie works. But no, it's really more so a kid, our main character, going, "I am not who you think I am, and I am going to make things better." And as somebody who values autonomy, who values the freedom to do what we think is right and what we think is good for ourselves. I think that's really good, not assigning ourselves to some story that was that we didn't write, you know? And I think that that's why the movie speaks to me on such a profound level. That's why it's my favorite movie. Watching it now, I realize the entire subplot with the entire side story with Doc Brown and Marty trying to tell him what happens to him is absolutely a reinforcement of that theme. It never occurred to me until now. I was like, why did Doc go back on his character? Why did he do that? It's because of Marty. Marty is the agent of chaos. He is the enemy of fate and destiny. He is, ironically, even though, like, in a meta sense, he's trying to tell the story of his parents meeting for the first time, it fails. He fails in doing, in trying to arrange destiny. It only happens because the people that he tries to confront, the people that he tries to get together, they have to act on their own will. Not only that, but, like, Doc Brown's story is about consistently, no, I don't want to know what happens to me. I warned you about this, kid! The consequences could be disastrous! And you know what? On a surface level, I'm like, I get that. I understand that. But then, as he gives Marty that letter that he, he, he taped back together, telling him, oh, God, I'm going to be, gun you know, you're going to be gunned down by um, terrorists. You should do something about that. Like, on this night, at this time. He decides, no. No, it's not worth not knowing my destiny to be gunned down by terrorists when I create the thing I spend the next 30 years making. No, life is precious and important, and Marty wants to preserve that. And I think that's that's strong, that's powerful, that's meaningful, in a sense that not a lot of people talk about with this film. It is about spitting in the face of everything about, not only, like, the stories of the chosen ones, of, you know, of it is your destiny, like, it is also about just not being what we think we have to be being our own thing, you know, blazing our own trails. And I think that's 
that's meaningful and powerful. The ideas of fate and destiny that you were talking about earlier. When you said that, I was like, but wait, like, isn't the whole point of the movie that like Marty is trying to like retain the destiny and fate? But you bring up this great point in which he does fail. Like Marty doesn't. Yeah, really every time do he tries anything, he messes up. Yeah, Marty he doesn't fails. really do anything. George does it entirely on his own. I mean, I don't know entirely, but like you know, like. Most of it, most of it on entirely his own will. He punches Biff, gets the girl, they meet. I mean, there's that great moment, obviously, with Doc Brown with the bulletproof vest. You know, the Libyan terrorists come for him. They they shoot him, and it's the bulletproof vest. And Marty goes like, but what about, what about, like, destiny? Or what about the space-time continuum? And he goes like, I figured, what the hell? And, I, and that's such a, oh, man, a great scene. What would following destiny amount to? Doc still dies. The night he finally does time travel, solves it after 30 years, he dies that night. He gets gunned down by terrorists. Again, that's like the one part of the movie that just really, really doesn't age well. I don't know. The whole living yeah. terrorist thing, yep. really weird. I don't get it. I remember watching the movie for the first time and seeing Doc Brown get gunned down. I was shocked. I knew about Doc Brown. I knew about Marty. I I did not know that part. And it's an amazing part. One of the real triumphs of this movie and why I don't try to revisit it that often is because it is suspicious. Benzful. The conflict never stops. I used to think that maybe this film has a double climax, but no, its climax is just like four scenes long. The climax with Doc at the clock tower is so good. God, you think about all the things that happened during that scene. Like, Marty gets back, he goes into the DeLorean. The DeLorean doesn't start. <laughs> Marty has to like bang his head on the steering wheel to get the DeLorean to start. That's one. Then Doc realizes that the cord won't go in because the tree is like blocking the cord down from like being fully expendable. Even before that, he has to get across the gargoyles on the clock tower. Then he has to pull it. He zip lines down. I mean, I think one of the reasons that it is such a great climax and so suspenseful is because it doesn't happen until literally the very second. Doc zip lines down. And it barely even plugs in. He barely even gets the plug in before the lightning strikes and like goes through him and gets to the DeLorean. It is split second victory, which I mean is very appropriate given that it's, you know, all about time. It's all about, you know, timing it exactly to the point. Also, in terms of like conflict, when you talk about that scene after George punches Biff, Marty takes out the picture and it's still fading. And he realizes like, oh God, the band, like the band has to play so that they can dance so that they can kiss. So then he has to play for the band. Moment after moment after moment, there is so much conflict. And that is what keeps you on your toes uh, throughout so much of the film. And even the way this film is structured, not being artistic is not a bad thing at all. It's designed to be very much a crowd pleaser. And it's not subtle in its delivery. Like each each line is quotable because it's it's delivered with such gravitas. Like save the clock tower, or like I like Matt Goldie Wilson, like that kind of stuff. These are lines <laughs> that are so like given with such like one hundred and ten percent effort and stuff. And usually, yeah, eighties cheesiness, but it's just sincerity. I mean, if you're talking about a great effort, I feel like every line that comes out of Christopher Lloyd's mouth in this movie is said with like the most conviction. It's about like, it's a crowd pleaser that wears its heart on its sleeve. I think it's maybe the secret formula to why certain blockbusters take off and resonate. It's not just that they're made to please like the, you know, the biggest possible crowd. It's that you can tell this and you can see the sincerity through how the lines are written and how through the characters act. Are you enjoying this episode of My Favorite Movie Is? Did you wish it was jam packed with even more insightful conversation and no ads to interrupt? 
Well, you're in luck. If you sign up for our Patreon right now, you can get access to an ad-free and uncut version of this episode, featuring our full conversation from when we started rolling to when we cut. You'll also get access to other cool perks like commentary tracks, personalized video shoutouts, and access to the patron zone in our Discord community in which you can see early drafts and works in progress and help give us feedback to make the show even better. And if you can believe it, all of this is available for just $5 a month. Go to patreon.com slash podcast or click the link in the show notes to become a patron today. Now, back to the show. On the note of you mentioned with Christopher Lloyd, I noticed this time, this movie very much kind of features a blueprint for what is normally called the live-action cartoon. Think of movies like Dick Tracy and, of course, Speed Racer, The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle, movies that definitely borrow from the animation aesthetic. I think of, what is his name, Old Man Peabody shooting off his uh, mailbox, like it's just going the whole thing off, or like the out-of-time license plate spinning in the center of the frame and then falling. That stuff is so cartoony and so direct and so like emotionally like filled. It's like, it's not just, oh no, there's a bullet in there. No, the whole mailbox is coming out, baby. That conveys a sense of emotional honesty that is usually only saved for cartoons because it's, it's considered childish. And Back to the Future is not childish at all. It's just honest. It's just sincere. And it doesn't really have any time to be like, <laughs> it doesn't have time to be like, weird and underhanded it's like no we got to do this that, and the other thing and christopher lloyd is basically a cartoon character in this film like his giant wide eyes it's no wonder this movie was adapted into an animated series it's also no surprise that christopher lloyd would end up playing an actual like cartoon character in who framed roger rabbit yeah exactly just by also Another film by Robert Zemeckis. Mm-hmm. Also one of my favorite films. Yeah, that's another that's another classic. Yeah, there are, there are a lot of moments now that you mentioned it that are like that. Biff is basically a cartoon <laughs> villain. I mean, he's basically a oh skinnier version of Pete the dog from Mickey Mouse. You know, he even sounds like Oh, no, 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 not even Pete's like this stupid. Like uh, that's true. In the very opening of the film when Marty plays his guitar with the speaker system and completely blows it out to the point where the speaker just literally rips open. The cinematography is so forward. It's not about subtlety. It's never about subtlety. It's like, this is what's happening. We're going to make it look nice, but this is what is happening. Please, please pay attention to that. Man, think about that punch. Think about George McFly's when he's punching Biff. It's not like a, it's not like a simple thing. He like, he like goes from behind, wallops him in the face. And then Biff like, spins around and goes like like that like when like that weird redhead like takes uh lorraine mind if i butt in mcfly the redhead is laughing maniacally like a cartoon supervillain. there's like that yeah. one part where we're flying over all the uh all the kids dancing to johnny be good and there's that one guy who's just on the ground like dancing and snapping his fingers <laughs> at, at the other girl dancing which is the weirdest thing i have maybe ever seen in any dance scene we consider that stuff childish and cheesy because it's not really interested in beating around the bush it's like this is what's happening this is these are the emotions that are on display these are the emotions that we want to convey to you and we pick it up we pick it up because the film earns it Uh, it earns that uh trust from the audience because like it follows through on everything it sets up in that first act you know what's weird i noticed this film is kind of like almost a period piece of its own time i was literally just about to say one of the you, you're talking about all the reason it, it endures, talking about it being a cartoon. You know, everyone likes to call Back to the Future like one of the most 80s movies of all time. Your point just now about like how it knows exactly what it is and there's like no subtlety about it. Like to me, that is part of why it's so enduring 
because all of that sincerity is being channeled into being just like a hundred percent an eighties movie. And like, this is a movie that takes place in the eighties. It's about a kid who grows up in the eighties, which for a lot of movies doesn't go well. Like, I feel like there are so many movies that come out that came out from the eighties or the seventies or even the nineties, especially for kids of my generation where we look back on them and we're like, Oh my God, that's so dated. Like, Oh my God, those references make no sense. Like all that stuff. But for back to the future, it is literally a movie about time. The movie is about like traveling through time. So like, it has to you need to make it about the 80s because without making move something so so strictly in the 80s you're not going to get the juxtaposition of of it taking place in the 50s yeah the contrast needs to be as defined as possible and they nail it like i have never seen anyone else in any 80s media wear the life jacket thing that marty wears i've never seen that in any other character but i believe it because it makes sense for like oh yeah the 80s had weird fashion like watching this movie now is like no this is a movie that takes place in 1985 and he goes back to 1955 and it's not it's never like oh this movie feels so of its own time it really doesn't and that's again a miracle that's the difference that's the thing that makes back to the future like work is that it was not really embarrassed or ashamed of the era from which it came it's like we're weird yeah but like we stick out and we still have all the same elements of humanity that like every other decade decade has including the 50s for a movie about time travel this movie is surprisingly timeless max we're coming to the end of the conversation here but before you go i want to do the mfmi lightning round with you which is a series of questions where i'm going to ask you about your favorite things from this movie do your best to answer as impulsively as possible. Don't give it too much thought. I just want your mm. raw thoughts and your raw favorites from this movie. Okay, here we go. Favorite scene. Opening scene. Walking in and like guitar and everything. Like, yes, opening scene. Favorite character. Marty. Marty. Marty McFly. One of the best protagonists of his time. Favorite location or set. The diner is like, it's just a lot of really great moments in there. Like, you know, Goldie Wilson, like idea of running for mayor or like, you know, the confrontation or give me a milk, chocolate, <laughs> like that kind of thing. Favorite song featured in the film? Though my heart go, goes out to Earth Angel, back in time slams. It doesn't just slap, it slams. It slams. If you could pair Back to the Future with one additional film, not counting the sequels, for a double header, what would you say? I would pair up Back to the Future with the original Spider-Man because they exude a lot of the same qualities and a lot of the same emotional sincerity. They are obvious. They are unsubtle. So that that's what I would pair those. Back to the Future and the original Spider-Man. Very interesting. Sam Raimi's like, Spider-Man from... Yeah, like I would... I'm, I And I do mean Spider-Man, the original, the very first right. one. The original Spider-Man is absolutely a film that embodies a lot of the same things as Back to the Future. If Back to the Future is your number one favorite film, what is the film that comes up right beneath it? The Social Network. Like, I have, like, a top five in The Social Network, The Incredibles, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Another Zemeckis classic. I know, yeah. I just... See, this is why I will never not give Zemeckis a chance. Again, just like with Back to the Future, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, tech, like, it is a technician's fever dream. Uh, hopefully somebody on this show talks about it. I mean, that's another great doubleheader, I feel. Back to the Future and yeah. Who Framed Roger Rabbit. You know, maybe that would be a better answer. Yeah, but your original answer is more interesting. It's yeah. more unique. I don't think people would think about that. Last one. Favorite response you've gotten from somebody when you tell them that this is your favorite? Either it's my favorite too, or yeah, no, that makes sense. Like nobody has ever disagreed or been like, that doesn't really like fit, you know? And I've actually gotten more than one person going, yeah, it's my favorite film too, because it's just an easy film to, it's such an easy film to love. I don't have to put any effort into loving, into adoring this piece of cinema. 
I don't have to put any effort. It is all there right there. It is so easy. It like welp- welcomes me into that into that emotion, into that feeling. And that's that's not something that most pieces of art can claim. Max Mariner, thank you so much for being on the show. It was great to have you this here. Great pl- to, it was a pleasure, Larry. It was great to talk about Back to the Future. Where can people find you and your work? People can find me on YouTube at, just as Max Mariner. And people can also find me on Twitter, Mr. MR Max Mariner. Very simple stuff. And they can also find you on Game Rant. Yes? That's right. You can find me on Game Rant. Read Max's articles on Game Rant. Any final thoughts? Any final words, Max? I look forward to seeing um, to seeing the episodes to come from this. It's going to be fun, Larry. I think, I think this is exactly... Um, Exactly the kind of show that you would uh, that that works for you. And just like that, you have made it to the end of our first episode. Thank you so much for listening, and thanks especially to Max Mariner for being such a great first guest to have on the show and for bringing his unique and passionate perspective on all things Back to the Future. We actually posted a second episode featuring Katie Siegel, who's a TikTok comedian, actress, podcaster, just extraordinary multi-hyphenate on 2005's Pride and Prejudice starring Kira Knightley. It's a super fun conversation, very different from this one in all the best ways. And you can check that out as well as the introduction to our podcast as a whole, if you're looking for more information, on our show page. You should follow us there. That way you'll be notified whenever a new episode goes up every other Monday. And be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube so that way you can check out the video version of that podcast, which will go up the following Friday. You can also be notified when new episodes go up by following us on our social media pages at MFMI Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. For more information on our show, as well as a full catalog of audio and video episodes, you can go to mfmipodcast.com. Lastly, for sponsorship or other business inquiries, if you have a question about the show or if you just want to say hi, you can contact us at our email, hello at mfmipodcast.com. Until next time, thanks for listening. My Favorite Movie Is is a Larry Freed Presents production. It is executive produced, created, hosted, and directed by me, Larry Freed. And it is also produced by me alongside Brian Novak. Our assistant director is Stephen Reyes, and our editors are myself, as well as Clayton and Kimberly Allen. Our graphic designer is Monica Sarmiento. Our motion graphics designer is Elton Greenfield. And our theme song, Now and Then, as well as any other music featured on the show, is composed and performed by Matt Gorduk. For this episode, our camera operator was Kevin Lynn. Our sound recordist was Dominic Mistretta. And our production assistant was Ben Seltzer. A huge thank you to all of these incredibly talented and wonderful individuals, without whom this show just would not be possible. Uh, You can check out their social handles and websites in the show notes. My name is Larry Freed, and this has been My Favorite Movie Is. Is.